Hi, good morning. <clears throat> Today we're going to read from Luke chapter 19, 1 through 40. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, and since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter. He, was, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king, and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this, put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit? so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest. Then he said to those standing by, Take his mina away from him, and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he, has al he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them Bring them here and kill them in front of me. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. 
As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. The word of the Lord. Thanks, guys. Good morning. Oh, yeah. That's good. Good response. My name is Heather. For those of you who don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here. And um, as you see, we're going to be in the book of Luke during Lent. As Johnny said, Lent is the season that leads us up to Easter. So we decided that we would um, follow Jesus' journey through the Gospel of Luke. So we'll be studying Luke's Gospel, chapter 19 to 24. So if you want a practice to do during this season, you could pick up the Gospel of Luke and have a wee read of those chapters with us. It's going to be a good way for us to prepare and be immersed in the story as we read about Christ's um, death and burial and resurrection. And at the very end, spoiler alert, Jesus um, comes back to life, which is what we celebrate Sundays and what we will celebrate on Easter. And um, when he does come back to life, he um, goes to the disciples and um, the disciples, it literally says, oh, bye. <laughs> so cute. Bye, little, little one. <laughs> so, um, Jesus encounters the disciples, and the disciples literally look at him, and um, they're like, you're a ghost. They reduce Jesus to a ghost. Even though over and over again, he had told them, I'm going to be dying, but I will be coming back to life. It was easier for them to believe that he was a ghost than to believe that he was alive in the flesh. And I think maybe subconsciously, that's what we do with Jesus too. We reduce him to a ghost. It's easier that way. It's easier to believe that Jesus has more to do with spiritual things or the afterlife than he has to do with our lives now. So as we make our way to Easter and celebrate on April the 12th, we're going to look at what Jesus said and did so that we can comprehend the reality of his resurrection and what that means for our lives now. Because he is more than a ghost. So as we look at this text together. Let's pray um, before we dive in. Jesus, um, I pray that as we look at this gospel during this season, that you would become alive to us in new ways, that we would see you, that we would hear from you, that we would know you more intimately, that the reality of your resurrection and that you are God-made flesh would mean something to us that would be transformative. And so help us today as we look at this text. Help us to be open to your spirit, open to each other, 
open to the things that we need to hear and attend to, the things that we need to let go of. So help us this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. So Alex and Jenna read for us this rather hefty passage in Luke, and it's these three different stories. You have this um, Zacchaeus, which some of you may be familiar with, Zacchaeus, who ran around, got up a tree so he could get a little glimpse of Jesus. Jesus sees him, calls him down, goes to dinner at his house. Then after that, Jesus tells a story about this noble um, nobleman, and then finally, it's his procession into Jerusalem on a donkey. And so we're going to take each of those stories and see how they fit together in this gospel. So we'll start with Zacchaeus, first section of the gospel of Luke that we're looking at. And Zacchaeus, who was he? He was a chief tax collector and he was rich, says that in the text. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. And so, like I said, he climbed up the tree And Jesus found him and said he wanted to go to his home, which in the culture was the highest honor. Culture of hospitality, going to somebody's home, is bestowing on them a highest honor. And it annoys the people around. Mm. Jesus is going to go to his house, huh? Sketchy. Right? They've labeled him. That dude's a sinner. And that's what happens all the way through Luke's gospel before we get to this chapter. It's what people like to do, label people as outsiders. You're not good enough. Or maybe not just the outsider, it's just that person just isn't good enough, not measuring up. He's a sinner. And the reality is that that's us too, right? We don't always measure up. We all do things that we wish that we didn't do. And then we all do things or don't do things that we wish we did. And we find ourselves guilty. Maybe you walked in here this morning and you feel like you don't quite measure up. I grew up, as you all know, in England, like to talk about it, and I I know, surprising, Susanna, and I grew up going to this little English church in a village, stone church, and a really old church, and we had prayers that we read every week, there was about 20 of us, and I think my brother and I were like the youngest, the other ages were between 70 and 95. (laughs) A little different than our demographics. But every week, we would, there's these carpeted kneelers that we would get down on a kneel and we'd all be there together and we would kneel these prayers. And last time I was there, and I know that red prayers that you read with everyone isn't everyone's cup of tea, but it's what we did every week. And last time I was there, I was kneeling next to this woman in her 90s. I've known her my whole life, literally since I was a tiny little person. There she is. From Liverpool, that a Scouser accent, and we're both kneeling there on these carpeted kneelers in this church that um, is old, 13th century. And this is the prayer that we read every week together. 
most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. In the glory of your name, amen. We used to do that every week. And it may seem rote and contrived to some of you, but it's a practice that reminded me that God's mercy wouldn't run out. That every week we could do that as a collective of people and it was for all of us in that space. That God's mercy is abundant and it never runs out. And that it was this moment together as a community that we got to admit that we didn't do the things that we should have done and we did some of the things that we wished we hadn't. And on offer in that space collectively together was mercy and a new opportunity to walk in the ways of Jesus. And that's the beauty of confession. We get to take responsibility. Now we get to receive mercy. And that's what Zacchaeus does in the presence of Jesus. He takes responsibility, owns up, he names what he's done, and then he makes amends. He chooses to admit that he has been kind of sabotaged by this corrupt tax system and he has been participating in that system and he's part of perpetuating it and now he wants to make amends. And he says, I'll give away half of what I have to the poor, which means dude's probably pretty rich. So he's going to give away half of what he has and then he's going to make amends four times for the people um, that he has done and cheated. And so in the company of Jesus, he acknowledges this thing that he done is it's a confession and he wants to make amends. And in that moment, Jesus calls that salvation. Salvation has come to this house is what Jesus says in that moment when Zacchaeus admits that he is perpetuating this system that is against the ways of Jesus. And the people, like I said, are annoyed because they see him as not good enough and Jesus corrects them. His kingdom isn't coming to deal in retribution and vengeance. His kingdom is about rescue. And setting people free. He is seeking to save, to rescue, to liberate those who are lost. And so Zacchaeus, embedded in this system, is liberated out of it, is saved out of it. And he is now given a new opportunity to walk in a different way. And the pathway to that Freedom is humility and repentance. And that always leads to what? The mercy of God. 
I think in this moment, that's what Jesus not only wanted Zacchaeus to get a hold of, but he wanted all of the people around in proximity who were busy pointing fingers to understand that's what he was about to. Mercy. He wanted them to discover it, and that's what he wants us to discover too. No matter who you are, no matter where you've come from or what you've done, he wants that for you too. To discover mercy. But it's hard to discover mercy in contexts where mercy is rare. So he tells this parable, this story about a nobleman. In verse 11, this nobleman, he went to find a kingdom and then he returns. But before he found his kingdom, the citizens hated him. And they sent a delegation and they're like, dude, we do not want this person to have power over us. And then at the end, you see that one of the people, one of the citizens were afraid because he was so severe. And then we see how severe he is because there's a ruthless ending. He just kills the ones who aren't in line with him. And this is similar here. There's a similar parable to one that's found in Matthew. And there's a debate among, among biblical scholars about the meaning. But the consensus is that these two parables are not the same. And they aren't pointing to the same thing, the one in Matthew and the one here. Reason, there's a reason that Luke puts this story in this particular place. And when we hear it, it might sound a bit outlandish, a bit cruel. But it's actually just kind of politically par for the course in Jesus' day. This, the context that he finds himself politically, the climate. The Herodian family, basically, who has rule for a long period of time, consistently goes to Rome and asks them to be king. They have to get permission from Rome, from Rome because Rome is the power at the time. And Rome consistently gives this Herodian family the power and the authority to hold that responsibility. At one point, there was a Jewish delegation that was actually sent to Rome to say that they didn't want this family to rule over them because of how they were being ruled by them. And we know how intense it is because when Jesus is born, what does King Herod do? He slaughters all of the children that are two and under because he is threatened by the possibility of Jesus being an actual king. The abuses that happen in the context of this situation are intense. The story of a cruel and vindictive king is their reality. And so I'm inclined to believe that Jesus' story here is a story to reveal something. It's to give us a picture of a contrast. A contrast between the rulers that they were used to, like this vengeful king, 
And Jesus, who is poised to enter Jerusalem, which is where we go next in the text. Let's read it. He goes into Jerusalem, and when he enters, he gets on a donkey. Sent his disciples to go and get a donkey, and so they were untying the colt. His owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, this donkey. Throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And he rode, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road as he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives. Pay attention, Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace. Jesus is on his way into Jerusalem on a donkey. And there's humility to that, but there's also a claim that Jesus is making by riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. He claims Old Testament words in this moment for himself. Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king. See your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Jesus in this moment is claiming these words for himself, declaring that he is the king. And that he enters how? Righteous and victorious. And the disciples around him in that moment believe it. What do they say? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. It's this moment where they're excited and thrilled and Acknowledging that something here is good and right. Victorious. But it's not a warlike victory that Jesus brings. The victory he brings is different. God's ways do not mirror the ways of power that usually operate. Right? Usually, you're relying on military might, ways that you can annihilate your enemies, right? And you can annihilate your enemies in a lot of different ways. You can annihilate your enemies with force. You can annihilate them with punishment. But you can also annihilate them with words and with humiliation. We see plenty of that, don't we, in our political environments. It's the usual infighting, whether it's across lines or in your own house, it's this infighting. You humiliate, you dress it down, you make another person look stupid or irrelevant. And there's this kind of this insatiable quest to seek more status and more power, more land, more economic strength and influence. It's like you need more and more and more, and it's relentless. 
And this kind of power and these kind of structures tend to be about self-interest or national interest. Even if it has cost to others. Even if it costs somebody else their reputation. It's just par for the course. Jesus is a different sort of king. Different sort of ruler. He holds the kind of power that is self-giving and sacrificial. It's full of compassion and mercy and equity and justice. It's the kind of power that gives life rather than taking people's lives. Jesus embodies the kind of power that makes for peace. And how does he bring peace? Well, that's why he's making his way into Jerusalem to confront the powers that divide, the the powers that break. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20 says this that Jesus makes peace through his blood shed on the cross. That's the way that he makes peace. Self-giving, self-sacrificing, in humility and generosity. He makes peace through his blood shed on the cross. We have to ask ourselves, what does he mean by peace? Peace is declared when he arrives in. Peace is what is declared as he's about, as he makes his way to Jerusalem. So we'll have to ask ourselves, well, what is peace? And the biblical notion of peace is a lot more than just the absence of conflict. It refers to taking what is broken and restoring it to wholeness. So that would mean lives or relationships or a world or systems. That Jesus comes to bring all of it back to wholeness. That's what peace is. And the biblical narrative is always pointing to. And our peace or our wholeness comes from walking in Jesus' ways. Not aligning ourselves to the practices that govern competing allegiances. We see Zacchaeus, this competing allegiance. He had it, this system, this corrupt system of taxation. The ways that the Herodians carried themselves as a family. They invited people into that to perpetuate that. To competing allegiance. And we live in our own context where there are competing allegiances for our loyalty. And our peace and our wholeness comes from walking in the ways of Jesus, and yet often we don't. We buy into systems that perpetuate brokenness. We take the way of pride. We take the way of fear. We take the way of greed. We take the way of scarcity. It's 
scarcity of time, scarcity of relationships. We even take the spiritual activity pathway. That means that we don't trust God, but instead we anxiously try to prove or to earn or to get it right. And that's the pathway that we take in perpetuation. I've got to get this right. I've got to prove it. I've got to earn it. And we find ourselves, I was talking to my friend last night, and she's like, yeah, we just kind of vacillate between self-centeredness and self-deprecation. We think a little too highly of ourselves, and all of a sudden we're always thinking a little too lowly of ourselves. And we get lost. We're lost. We're lost in pride. We're lost in fear. We're lost in greed, we're lost in spiritual activity, we're lost in too much of ourselves, too little of ourselves. We take paths that are costly to ourselves and those around us. Lost. Guess what, Missio? Some good news. Jesus comes to seek and save those who are lost. Yes. It's the good news. And he wants to offer peace. He wants to offer you peace. Wholeness. But, like Zacchaeus, it's not disconnected from everyday life. Be all well and good for me to be like, oh yeah, Jesus offers you peace and mercy. And then you're like, oh great. And then you off you go to your work and it doesn't mean anything. That means it's like that same concept that's just ghostly. It's this thing that you can't get a hold of and it's out there somewhere, but don't know how to do that. Which is why our Lenten journey is so important. The silence that we might keep five minutes in the morning before you go to work. Or a prayer. You light a candle and you say a prayer. Or you read the book of Luke. Or you get into community. And the reason that we do those things is because we need humility and we need confession and we need repentance. We need time with Jesus. So that these kinds of things connect to our everyday life. So that you know when to apologize to your kids or a roommate for being distracted because of scarcity of time. And they were trying to tell you something that was important to them. So that you know when to give money instead of just earn it. So that you know when to speak the gospel truth over yourself, that you are seen and that you are wanted and that you are loved. So that you know when to rest instead of earning or, prove, or proving or doing. So that you know when to confess the things that you have done or the things that you have left undone. 
It's humility and repentance that leads to peace and wholeness. And when Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem, we'll talk about this next week, he weeps. He weeps because he says they don't know what will bring them peace. And he offers it. He wants us to have it. He wants us to be next to the person, next to us on a carpet, kneeler, ready to attune, ready to get connected to Jesus so that we know how to receive mercy in our everyday lives. And so we're going to do that this morning. I'm not going to have you kneel on the ground. It's a bit too rough on the concrete. But I'm going to give you a moment of quiet. This is a practice that we're going to do every week all the way to Easter. We're going to take a few moments of quiet. We're going to let silence be a way that we can hear. Where are you too busy? Where do you need rest? Where do you need to apologize and make amends? Where do you need to have an imagination for generosity? And it's not because we have things we need to be about. It's because we want to get aligned on the pathway that Jesus is calling us into. Out of the things that steal our peace away from us and be brought back into the peace that he gives. And so I'm going to give you a moment of quiet and then just name one thing in the quiet of your own heart and then we will read that prayer together. My English friends have already read it this morning. We'll join them and we'll read this prayer aloud together and today, Missio, you receive mercy. You don't have to pray the prayer aloud, but you're welcome to. So let's take some time of quiet and then we'll read it together aloud if you feel comfortable doing so. Messiah, let's together come and receive mercy, receive peace. As we pray together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name. Amen. Monsieur, now we come to this table, and it's a table of celebration. 
that you receive mercy, that you're a people of grace, and that you extend mercy, and that you extend grace. You can come and pray with people here. It may be that you want to get baptized on Easter. You can come and talk to us about that. But today's the day to celebrate that we get to receive mercy. So let's continue worshiping together.